Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. Thank you for joining us and I hope you enjoy the show. I am Scott Gardner and joining me for his very first appearance on this program is my good buddy, Mr. Mike Poteet, known as Biblio Mike on the comicforums.com and published Star Trek author. Yes, I'm beating that dead horse again. How's it hey, going, it's, Mike? <laughs> it's, it's, it's going fine. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a thrill to have you here. So I am really, really curious what you you have uh, brought to the show tonight well what i have selected i hope will not be too much uh, out of format but it's a uh, it's an, an elseworlds volume actually oh uh, a, a small one a small enough one to be uh, you know of comparable size to maybe a double issue of a regular floppy so it's not a regular floppy but it's uh it's superman war of the worlds oh i've uh, been wanting to read this oh but you haven't read it no i have not okay well i i wasn't Planning to spoil it too much anyway. Oh no, no, that's fine. But, uh, Please, no, 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 I don't. I don't want to spoil the fun for you because it is. It, it's really, it's really a great issue. It's by Roy Thomas, uh, is the writer, and Michael Lark is the artist. Published ten years ago in 1999, it cost five ninety five. So I don't know what a comparable thing would be now. Probably twelve ninety nine or yeah, fourteen exactly. ninety nine. <laughs> anyway, it's a sixty four page uh, Elseworlds graphic novel and. Uh, I was actually before the show tonight talking to my son, who's who's eight, and he's a comic fan uh, along with me. And I was telling him I was going to be on this show talking about a comic book that took Superman out of his regular kind of situations and put him in a different one to see what would happen. And my son says, "Oh, what's the situation?" I said, "Well, it's a it's about the war of the worlds, and and aliens are coming to try to take over the Earth." And my son looks at me like I'm crazy. He says, "Dad." Superman's in that situation all the time. How is this in Elseworlds? <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. You're right. Said, He's right, though. I said that's a, that's an excellent point. So I explained that this was a specific <laughs> alien invasion that Superman hadn't been involved with before. So, of course, the title comes from the H.G. Wells novel, War of the Worlds, which was published in 1898. Have you read the original book, War of the Worlds? I am ashamed of myself that I have not, and I really need to because I am a huge fan of the 1950s uh, movie. Love that movie, and I, I've always meant to go back and read that. Plus, plus I'm a Wells fan anyway just from um, – What's that movie? Time is it? Time after time. Oh, time after time. Yes. That is a great movie. It is a great. Yes. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's okay because I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen the 1950s movie, the George Powell movie. I, I've read the book and I love especially the 1938 Orson Welles radio yeah. production. Well, you the need Panic to treat Club. yourself um, and and watch it. And a good time to watch it is right around Halloween time. As a matter of fact. Uh, you, you need to keep an eye out, um, like at the video stores or what. You, that movie, for for some reason, usually goes on sale. And huh. I bought the the when the new version came out, the the kind of crappy Spielberg one. Oh, you didn't like it? Yeah, I, I thought it was okay. I thought it was pretty good. But uh, the uh, they came out with a special edition of the original '50s one, and it was like I think it was five dollars. I mean, it was dirt cheap wow. at Target. It was like a promo because the new one had come out, and I snapped it up, and it's got all kinds of extras and documentaries, and everything. it's great. I love that movie. But anyway. <laughs> well, I will, I will have to check it out because I can't call myself a sci-fi fan without having seen that movie. But anyway. You can't. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so, so what this issue does is uh, it plays on the fact that 1938, the year of the Panic broadcast, is also, of course, the year that Superman was created mm-hmm. or, or introduced, rather, in Action Comics number one. So uh, 
by those two things taking place both in 1938, uh, they've created this story where the Martians come to Earth and Superman is standing in their way. And so uh, it, it's a neat, neat uh, weaving of the two stories. And, and uh, I'll set it up a little bit and then uh, leave you and the other listeners to go read the rest on your own. But uh, just to read a little bit from the first page, uh, what they do is they take verbatim passages from the famous opening chapter of Wells's novel. How they're no watching would, us and all that? Yeah, no one would have believed in the early decades of the 20th century that the Earth was being watched keenly and closely across the gulf of space by intelligences greater than man's. But the artwork is of uh, baby Kal-El's rocket shooting away from exploding Krypton. Oh. So the image gives this whole new meaning to Wells's words. We're being watched from space, not just by Mars, but by Krypton, you know. Jorel's uh, looking at us through the telescope, deciding to send his son here. So um, I like that because see the movie, um, the fifties movie, starts with that, and it's yeah. the way it's read gives me chills every time that I listen to it. So yeah, I'm, I'm loving this already. Yeah, because it's a very ominous thing. It, it sounds is. like in the movie, and for sure in the book, and in the Orson Welles broadcast. It's, but here it's got. It's ominous when it's Mars watching us, but it's something else when it's Krypton watching us. And so the first few pages are um, text from Wells' novel, and then it sort of segues into uh, the familiar images of the rocket landing in the Kansas field and the, the elderly couple stopping to help. And then it becomes verbatim text from uh, Action Comics 1 or maybe Superman 1 of the origin story. You know, an elderly couple, the Kents, uh, they were astounded by the infant's feats of strength. As the lad grew older, he learned to his delight that he could leap an eighth of a mile, run faster than a streamlined train. It's all those original uh, powers that Superman had, you know, before he could fly, right. before he could turn the world around on its axis, that kind of stuff. It's got the image of Clark as a young boy in the doctor's office, you know, and the doctor can't get the syringe pressed into his skin. So, so it sets up the story as, uh, like I say, this really brilliant weaving of these two texts uh, into something new. And um, Clark goes off to Metropolis uh, to find a job at the Daily Star. George Taylor, uh, editor-in-chief, and Perry White, city desk editor. And he walks into the Daily Star office. The first person he meets turns out to be Lois Lane. She's working the switchboard, but she's only doing that to substitute for the switchboard operator who's away on a break. <clears throat> so uh, we get the Clark-Lois uh, relationship established pretty early on. And, and in this uh, issue, Lois is very much the no-nonsense, feisty reporter like from the old George Reeves series. In fact... Uh, she's drawn to look a little bit, I think, like Noel Neal in the role. And uh, Clark is drawn to look like George Reeves. It's very classic. Oh, that's you know, cool. It's set in 1938, so it's got all that classic uh, fashion sense about it, the, the, the hats and the dresses, and it all is, is really done uh, in a great period style. And as Clark goes in to meet with uh, his potential boss, they're discussing a meteor that crashed in Woking, now, Woking, uh, I assume they mean Woking, England, which is where the first meteor falls in H.G. Wells' original novel. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are meteors like this falling all over the earth, and uh, George Taylor is going to give Clark his first shot. You know, okay, well, I'll give you a shot at being a reporter. You and, and Lois, well, Lois sort of shoehorns her way into going on this assignment because as in regular 
DCU continuity. She started off uh, writing a, a Miss Lonely Hearts kind of column. Right. But she wants bigger and better things. So so anyway, the end result is she and Clark go off to investigate the meteor crash uh, near Metropolis. And then the story is back into the familiar contours of the H.G. Wells and the Orson Wells broadcast. You know, reporters out in the field. There's the cylinder, uh, big impact crater, uh, and uh, an astronomer, Dr. Ogilvie, is there. Dr. Ogilvie is a character from H.G. Wells' novel, but he also has an associate with him who is none other than Lex Luthor at this stage with a full head of red hair. So uh, they're both there as the Martian makes its dramatic entrance, and Michael Lark draws a really creepy Martian. It's hard to describe. It's sort of like an octopus, uh, and it's got big bulbous eyes. And and the way he draws uh, the sharp teeth, you just see the bottom row of sharp teeth, and it looks like a smile. You know, it's this this grinning Martian coming out to devour everyone. (laughs) So, uh, and and if somebody tries to go up with a flag of truce, like in the original Wells tale, uh, they get fried for their efforts with the heat ray. Uh, But what's different then, it gets back into the Superman twist because uh, the heat ray is coming straight for Lois. Clark jumps in the way to deflect it and it burns off his business suit and reveals his Superman action costume with the triangular shield on the chest. No, no Pentagon yet. The old triangular shield. And uh, Lois says, you, who are you? you, know, you and, and Superman, although he's never called that except for one time in this issue, and I'll get to that later. Uh, he responds, you needn't be afraid. I won't hurt you. Which is again an exact yeah. quotation from that first origin story, one of those iconic moments. And that's what I love about the Elseworlds. And I haven't read very many of them since I'm still a relatively new comics fan. Uh, and this one's probably the favorite of the ones I've read. But finding those those iconic moments in a whole new context and and seeing what results. So uh, there's no secret identity in this version. Uh, he's Clark Kent. He's just in this this red and blue action costume, and. Uh, Things shift back to the Wells narrative uh, outline. The Martians begin their attack with the heat rays, and they they raise themselves up on the tripods. There's some great uh, military action artwork in this, explosions and zap sound effects and flames and uh, Superman striking all sorts of heroic poses. Uh, It's really great stuff. Um, And as Superman is fighting the Martians, Lois is is, uh, calling in her report back to the Daily Star, and some of that dialogue is verbatim from the radio broadcast when Carl Phillips, the reporter, is trying to describe for his radio audience the carnage going on at Grover's Mill in that version. So while Superman's fighting the Martians, and by the way, he's doing so at some points in a very up-close-and-personal Will Smith Independence Day kind of way, you know, <laughs> getting right in the Martians' face and saying, oh, uh, knocked you on your tail, and you're still itching for a scrap, eh? You know, <laughs> it's you know like Will Smith, welcome to Earth, and then pal, right in the alien so punch right in the kisser, yeah. So in the finest tradition of the alien invasion stories. Uh, anyway, while Superman's doing all that, Lois is trying to get away, and uh, Lex Luthor offers her a ride back to his laboratory to get away from uh, uh, from all that's going on, and uh, so the Martians are making their advance. And uh, Superman's trying to stop them. They're shooting down airplanes from the sky. You know, things are really getting dire. And then uh, finally somebody says, look, up in the sky. Another soldier says, it's just a bird. Another says, looks more like a plane. And a third soldier says, no, it's that guy in the acrobat outfit. 
which is probably the best of those little <laughs> iconic moments that shows up in a totally new way. So uh, eventually, though, two simultaneous heat ray blasts get the best of Superman, and he blacks out. And he wakes up three weeks later in Lex Luthor's lab. And that's when we learn that Lex Luthor has been collaborating with the Martians. He's communicating with them telepathically. And uh, Clark, again, he's not really Superman by name in this, takes him to task. And Lex says, it's a great Lex line that I think he might say in any uh, of the multiverse incarnations of Lex Luthor. He says, humanity's finished, and I'd be a damned fool to go down with it. It's a a great character moment. Uh, But his specific task is to find out why Clark Kent survived the initial attack and why his skin can't be penetrated by the Martians' probes. And he's convinced the Martians he can find out what Clark Kent's secret is. And they want to know because they are already starting to die off of the bacteria. Spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read or seen one of the versions of the War of the Worlds, <laughs> but uh, they eventually, in Wells' original novel, do die because of, as Wells says, the humblest creature that God and his wisdom put on the earth, this right. little bacteria. And Lex Luthor uses those same words. Again, the script in this is just so clever at so many points. So they're dying of this, but Lex Luthor, uh, in a move that Gene Hackman's Lex would have approved of, you know, no, 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 I, I'm your friend. I'll, I'll help you. I'll show you. How, I'll show you the ropes. Uh, he's going to find out why Clark Kent uh, has survived, and maybe that will give the Martians the edge they need to survive as well. He says, Clark Kent, the Nietzschean Superman, who walked so briefly among us, may yet be the savior of the Martians. It's the only time the word Superman appears uh, in the text of this issue. So the rest of the issue is about Superman. A, having to extract himself from Luthor's clutches. B, having to find out what happened to Lois. C, having to stop the Martians. And uh, it doesn't necessarily go down as you think it would. So uh, I will leave the rest to you and the listeners to read for themselves if you haven't. But it's a, it's a great story. It's really exciting. Um, again, if you're familiar with the source material either of Superman or of the War of the Worlds. It's a fabulous blending of the two. And and to think that it was, I'm sure, just sparked by the realization somebody had, hey, 1938, the Radio War of the Worlds and right. Superman. Two right. great tastes that taste great together. So uh, there's also a nice subplot that goes on through the issue about once Lois realizes Clark is an alien, uh, here you've got some aliens coming from the sky to destroy us, and here's an alien who says he wants to help us, but, you know, can you trust him? And uh, what do you do with that? So uh, they pack a lot into these 64 pages, and uh, I highly recommend it. Superman, War of the Worlds. I don't know how this one, how I didn't purchase it, because I remember when it came out, and somehow it just slid past me and I, I've never gotten it, but I really want to read it because I've heard great things about it. It it just plain looks good. I, I'm looking at the it cover does. image right now and I'm just like, wow, I really, really want to read this because I am a fan of both, you know, Superman, of course, but especially this era of Superman. I'm a fan yeah. of War of the Worlds. So yeah, I've definitely got to read this. The only bad thing is I'm pretty sure 
I know how this story ends. I, I, I believe it's been spoiled for me already, but I'm oh, not 100% sure, but that that's not going to deter me from from getting it. I've, I'm just going to have to track it down and get it. It wasn't spoiled by me. So. <laughs> no, no, it was, no, it was, no. I'm thinking it was. It may, it may have been by Murd on CGS. I'm not sure. But I, I, yeah, I think they mentioned it once. Yeah. And you mentioned that cover image. Even that, Superman's in the pose from Superman number one. Yep, exactly. But instead of, instead of shiny Metropolis in the background, it's the tripods blowing up Metropolis in the background. So again, it's just really, uh, really a neat thing. Highly I like right. this idea of of taking two different, I don't know what you would call it, properties, I guess. Yeah. And mashing them up like that. It, it's kind of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen style. Yeah. And I would love to see more stuff like this go on in comics where you take two very divergent properties and kind of mash them up. Because, uh, you know, you could potentially do um, – all right, this is going to sound a little wacky, but but go with me here. Um, you could potentially do like, say, the 1939 Batman and say like Indiana Jones. That would I, be I cool. think that'd be really cool. Maybe an interesting team, yeah. Yeah, or you know, anything like that. You know, you, you could take any year that some famous movie came out and and link it up with some comic book character or some you know great literary work and, and mash it up with some. I would just, I would love to see more stuff like that if it could be done well. Because that was the other thought that I had was, uh, you know, way to go to uh, to Roy Thomas because he tried this kind of thing. With um, with young all stars several times, and the only time I really felt like it worked well was with Hugo Danner. Making Hugo Danner uh, yeah. Arm Monroe's father was a brilliant stroke. But when he tried um, a couple more times, because there was uh, the time where he basically I felt like he threw too much into one story where he uh, made Captain Nemo responsible for the sinking of the Titanic and then tied all that into the origin of Neptune Perkins. And, and it just got uh. way convoluted. I, I like the basic idea he had, but it just didn't work. It, it just, yeah. he didn't pull it off well. And then uh, it was our friend Michael Bailey that reminded me that they also, uh, he, uh, Roy Thomas also incorporated Frankenstein into one of the stories in Young All-Stars. I'd totally forgotten about that, but he's right. And that story kind of sucked too if i remember properly so you know but i like the idea that you know roy thomas is obviously a fan of those properties and and sure. of this era of comics so I, it's nice to see him finally pull one off that that you know from all accounts is really superb so yeah good at least but I'll I'll shut up after this. But there's at least one other instance of a, of a Superman mashup like this that Roy Thomas was also involved with, um, and I, his name's on the front cover. I can't find right now what he did exactly. But uh, it was Superman's Metropolis, which was another Elseworlds, oh, yeah. which took as its part of the point of departure the fact that Superman's home city and uh, the city in the movie Metropolis, the 1927 Fritz uh, Lang Fritz Lang film. You know, share that name. So that's another uh, example of this mashup being done, and it's pulled off very well in that as well. So, how, how is that when I've never heard a thing about it? Um, it's a little less gripping than the War of the Worlds one, but if you've seen the Fritz Lang film, and I had seen it recently when I read it, um, it's it's pretty good. It's it's, and and they do a, a pretty good job at replicating the visual style of the film, but making it 
work for the Superman uh, story, and mm-hmm. uh, I'd have to read it again to give a more detailed review. But it, it's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah. And Roy Thomas co-wrote that issue as well. So. I was aware of it, but I've never heard a single review for it. So I wondered if it was any good. They, they've done a number of uh, of mashups. Sort of similar, but yeah, that, that those are the only ones I can think of that are specifically set, you know, right in that same era of the Golden Age Superman. But there, there have been other because uh, they did uh, Superman and Frankenstein. I can't remember what the name of that oh, one was. Really? The Superman Monster, I think, is the name of it, which looked huh. kind of intriguing and kind of goofy at the same time. So I don't know. <laughs> Again, I never heard any reviews of that one either. Oh, I've never heard of that one. Yeah, so I'll have to look for that. <laughs> So there are some there are some really strange ones out there, but uh, but I, I like the I like the concept of Elsa, yeah. but I really like this concept of of crossing over the the two properties in the same year like that. Yeah, great choice, man. Because I now you've got me intrigued. Now I'm going to have to track this down and read it. Uh, what right. have you got? Well, you are responsible, my friend, for this choice. This has been sitting on my nightstand absolutely forever because you had asked me to read it a long time ago, and I promised you I would, and then it just got buried under a stack of new comics and just kind of uh-huh. fell to the wayside. And as I was thinking about, you know, what did I want to read for this show, normally I, I choose things with the uh, with the net, uh, random number generator, uh, <laughs> but all of a sudden, it, ju- it occurred to me that I had something in my to-read stack that, that you had actually asked me to read. So I thought, well, I'll dig it out and I'll give this a read. And I was intrigued to read it, but only mildly so. And I was pleasantly surprised as soon as I opened the front cover, I suddenly got really excited to read it. And I'll tell you why in just a second. This is all right. Now we're going back to May of 1981 for this one, and this is just this is right in my wheelhouse. I love the 80s comics. This is DC Comics Tales of the Green Lantern Corps, oh, number very one. Very good. Very good. <laughs> it's a really dynamic cover on the front of the core. You know, they're all lifting their rings up to the sky, and we've got the floaty heads of the Guardians in the background and all. Yeah. It's a Brian Bolin cover. Now I like Brian Bolin. Don't get me wrong. But when I saw this cover, I really expected it was going to be the same art inside or maybe even um, – oh, gosh. I'm going to draw a blank on the guy's name, the, the guy that drew Watchmen. Gibbons, Dave Gibbons, who, again, don't get me wrong, I like his art. But I figured it was going to be one of the two of them. And I like it. It's just not super dynamic to me. And, and uh-huh. that era of, of their Green Lantern stuff, I don't know. Somehow it just doesn't thrill me a, a lot. I'm not, I'm not the biggest Hal Jordan fan anyway. But anyway, I open this up, and who's the artist on it? Joe Staten, one of yeah. my absolute <laughs> favorites. So Good. right off the bat, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to like this story. <laughs> so anyway, this one is uh, written by Len Wein from a plot by Mike W. Barr, uh, art by Joe Staten and Frank M- M- uh, McLaughlin. I can never pronounce this guy. It's either McLaughlin or M- McLaughlin. Original cover price was a mere 50 cents. Breaks my heart. They're not that cheap anymore. And the story is called Challenge. And we start off the story with uh, Hal Jordan. He's whipping through space. He's been called by the Guardians. And he's flying along, and he realizes that this ball of jade energy is kind of tailing him along. And he's kind of weirded out by it at first, and all of a sudden it materializes into the form of another Green Lantern who introduces herself as Arisha. And 
I didn't look it up, but I'm guessing that this is probably their first meeting because it doesn't seem like so. a flashback or anything. So that's yeah. cool that this is actually the first meeting between Arisha and uh, and Hal Jordan. And she's explaining that she's a brand new GL. She she just became a GL. She really is, uh, you know, a, a complete newbie to this whole thing. And she kind of wants to tag along and, and get some pointers from Hal Jordan because even at this time he's you know a legend in the core and everything. As they're talking, they suddenly see all the rest, you know, the the entire other thirty six hundred um, GLs whip by them on their way to Oa, and Hal realizes that it's not just a summons for him; that the entire core has been summoned to Oa. And they go to Oa, and the art is absolutely gorgeous, and Staten yeah. knocks himself out beautifully depicting this very wide and, and diverse range of GLs, you know, from, you know, plant creatures and snake creatures and giant bugs and all these things. <laughs> to one that looks literally like, like a Mount Everest style <laughs> yeah. lantern. It, it looks like a yeah. giant um, crystal or a giant mountain or something. It's really cool. There's, I mean, just an incredible array of green lanterns. And Hal kind of introduces Arisha around, you know, he smooshes with all the people he knows. We see Stell, we see uh, Kat Matui, we see that werewolf-looking guy, Ar- yeah. Ar- Arcus Chamuk, um, some different, all these different characters. And I did not realize that so many of the characters appearing in present-day Green Lantern books go back this far. I mean, I knew, like, Kat Matui, but... Guys like Stell and some of these other ones, I didn't realize they went yeah. back this far. So that was really cool. And uh, he, uh, Hal gets introduced to this guy who he looks like either he's a blob or he's a mist or something like that. He's like the companion from Star Yeah, yeah <laughs> he is. He absolutely is. And uh, and the guy basically says, you're not the Green Lantern of two eight of Sector two eight one four. I know that lantern. That's Abin right. Sur, and you're not Abin Sur, which is basically an opening for Hal to totally recount his origin right. story of you know how Abin Sur crashed, dying on Earth, and summoned Hal Jordan to you know his side and and gave him the Green Lantern ring, and it's just the whole retelling of that origin. And from there, you know, this guy realizes that you know if Abin Sur picked Hal Jordan, then, you know, Hal Jordan's okey-doke with him, and, you know, they become fast friends. At which point, you know, this was another uh, element that I didn't realize went back this far, were introduced to the Guardian's honor guard. You know, and, oh, and yeah. in present-day Green uh, Green Lantern stuff, I know that, uh, like, Guy Gardner and uh-huh. I believe Kyle Rayner as well are considered yeah. honor lanterns. And I didn't realize, I thought that was a brand new concept. I, I totally didn't realize it went back this far. And uh, Tomar Ree is one of these uh, one of these lanterns. And almost like rock star style, you know, they come out just basically <laughs> yes. to open the crowd for the Guardians to appear. Yeah. The Guardians appear and everybody's, you know, flabbergasted to meet them. And they basically tell that... Uh, you know, while everyone's assembled here, a few of the Guardians are scattered at different places throughout the galaxy to kind of basically hold down the fort while everybody's gathered. And they end up... Uh, I'm trying to remember how this comes up in conversation. Oh, okay. 
she's uh, Arisha starts to feel, you know, overwhelmed by all this because this is all totally new to her. She's awed in the presence of the guardians and everything, and you know, she feels so insignificant, you know, around them and all this. And this kind of leads into how Jordan telling about, you know, how they weren't always this way and, you know, that they were actually responsible. You know, one of their members was responsible for unleashing evil upon the universe, which is, again, it's an opening to tell basically the origin of the, of the guardians and of the GL core, which is way, 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 way back at basically at the dawn of the universe, the guardians were already an ancient race and they were, you know, studious, they were scientists, they were peaceable people that lived pretty much in paradise. But there was one of their number, this guy named Krona, who I've always really had a soft spot for. This guy's really cool. He's led to so many great stories, especially, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, and he was obsessed with discovering the origins of the universe. And he devised this machine to where he literally wanted to look back to the moment of creation and had basically decided to hell with all the ancient warnings that if this ever happened, that something terrible would happen. I've got to know. And so he looks back and he sees the moment of creation where this giant hand, basically, what I've always assumed was the hand of God, was springing the universe forth out of nothingness. And when he sees this, suddenly, you know, he's uh, blown back by... I guess it's like a cosmic bolt out of the blue or something like that. It's basically God smites him is the way I've always taken it. And in that instant, yeah. evil is unleashed upon the universe. And Krona is punished for what he's done. He's uh, he's changed into disembodied energy and sent on an eternal voyage through you know the infinite. And the Guardians, to atone for Krona's sin... First, they form the Manhunters, and that goes sour. So then they form the Green Lantern Corps, and that's basically the origin of of the Green Lanterns. They are cosmic cops out there to battle evil to atone for what the Guardians allowed to happen. And there's even a a little flashback tale telling of how um, Hal Jordan himself eventually fought Krona when Krona somehow escaped from his, his energy state. And it even mentions that he he met up with Alan Scott, the Earth 2 Green Lantern, and they battled Krona together. And I'm curious, I wish there were footnotes. There's no footnotes during this part, and I wish I could find out what this is, because I just, not to brag, but I just scored a great bunch of comics at the flea market last weekend, uh-huh. and one of them was uh, Green Lantern number 40. I got it for a buck, and it's in really good shape. And it's on the cover, it has Hal Jordan versus Alan Scott, and they're in front of the Guardians, and flipping through it, I'm pretty sure Crone is in that story. I'm wondering if that's the issue where all this happens. I'm really hoping it is. Maybe so. I'm really new to Green Lantern, so the issue numbers don't mean much to me at this point, so I don't know. So to um, make a long story short, at the end of the story, all of the... uh, Basically, the the guardians have called them all together because they he know they know that they face a great threat. They know that Krona somehow is coming back. So Krona shows up on their view screen, basically threatening them. He's going, you know, I'm going to take you down. <laughs> yeah. So all of the 
the you and your Green precious Lantern. universe. <laughs> I'm sorry. You and your precious universe. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> So all of the uh, GLs go into the power battery at once, and they say their oaths, which I thought was very, very interesting. This I always thought that it was a retcon that modern-day Green Lanterns all say the same oath. And I don't know why I thought that, but according to this, it, it is. Because in this it says, whatever their oath, um, it says... but. But to one and all, whatever their credo, whatever their oath, and then it blah blah blah, and it goes uh-huh. on. So they don't all say, right? The, you know, in blackest, in brightest day, right, blackest right. night oath. At least back during this time, anyway. Uh-huh. So that was interesting to discover. Um, something happens to the bo- power battery, and it actually explodes, and it kills people. I mean, there's yeah. actual casualties from all this. There's a lot of drama in this book, and at the end of it. The surviving lanterns decide. Well, now we only have forty. Uh, excuse me, twenty-four hours to stop Krona. We've got to go out there and we've got to kick his butt and take care of this situation right quick before we're powerless. And that's pretty much where the issue ends. And uh, yeah. you know, I, I'm like you, Mike. I'm you know, I've been aware of Green Lantern all my collecting life. Never could consider myself much of a fan until Kyle Rayner came along. Because there was so much hype about that storyline that, that you know, Hal Jordan was going bad and there was going to be this new guy that as disinterested as I always generally was with Green Lantern, I decided to check it out uh-huh. and got sucked in big time. Because I've always, always been a big sucker for the everyman characters, like the Will Payton Starman, um, Peter Parker you know, guys like that, just the guys that seem like, you know, you could almost be this guy, you know, right, you, you couldn't right. really be Bruce Wayne because, you know, who among <laughs> us is filthy, stinking rich. You couldn't right. really be Superman because, you know, we're not born on another planet. But somebody like Kyle Rayner, who just happened to wander down the wrong alley and get tossed, you know, the greatest weapon in the universe, we could be that guy. So yeah. I, I liked that character and it sucked me into this world. And, um, uh, so, you know, I've, I've collected Kyle Rayner's appearances on and off, and then when the uh, Sinestro Corps War started to get all the hype and everything, I tracked that down just because I heard so many good things. And I got kind of pulled back into the world of Green Lantern. But between, you know, that stuff and then reading this, it, it felt it, – this issue really filled in a lot of gaps for me. And now I see what people have always seen in this. But what's funny is – I like the Green Lantern core. Yeah. And I think yeah. the reason I never got into the Green Lantern title during this time was because I always felt like the Green Lantern we got, Hal Jordan, he was kind of a tool. I never really liked <laughs> the guy. He, For one thing, he's bo- I just thought he was boring. I thought he was kind of just generic. But I'm trying to remember. It was right around the time of the crisis, I believe, where it became the the title itself became Green Lantern Corps, uh-huh. uh, drawn by Staten, I do believe. I read that and I liked that book, and the you know the present day book. I, I just recently dropped it. I was forced to drop it for financial reasons, but the uh, you know the two GL books that were coming out of the two of them, I liked the Green Lantern Corps of that better too. So, mm-hmm. I guess ultimately I am kind of a fan of the Green Lantern Corps. Just you know, had just never really come right out and realized it before but yeah i dug this book and i really appreciate you recommending it to me because i thought it was 
really cool. Now I want to read the rest of the series and see see what happens. Yeah, well, it, the, the, it's only two more issues that miniseries, and and it's funny that that I put you onto it because I think it goes back vice versa as well because I believe on Two True Freaks you and Chris were getting excited about Blackest Night. Right. <laughs> and I don't know if that's maybe that hasn't panned out, maybe you're not enjoying it now. But at the time you're looking forward to it and 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 I don't you said something you said something about your enjoyment of the concept of the core. And at the time I think this uh the Tales of the Green Lantern Core miniseries that you're reading, the first issue of tonight, I think that was the trade that recently came out that has it in it where I read it was being solicited. So I picked it up and, and it was, so it was sort of my introduction to the green lantern universe. Cause I thought, well, everybody's excited about blackest night. I'm going to try to read blackest night. I need to know who these people are, right. what the concept is, you know, all I knew was what I'd seen on the super friends. And so that was, or no, that's not true. All I, my real introduction to green lantern was John Stewart on justice league, the animated series. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I was, I was, I didn't know he wasn't always. I didn't remember the Super Friends from my childhood, but when I watched it again with my son on DVD, like, oh, that's right, there was another Green Lantern before John Stewart wasn't there. <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, long way of saying, I think that um, it was that conversation on Two True Freaks that put me onto it. And like you, I think it's a great concept. I, I've always been a real a fan of the King Arthur legends, and the Green Lantern Corps remind me a lot of. The round table, you know. It's That's true. Band of warriors, someone from all parts, hither and yon, to, you know, to set right what's wrong and defend fair maidens and, you know, <laughs> slay the dragons and, <laughs> and all this stuff. So, so that was cool. And also reading this issue as my introduction to Green Lantern, it gave me uh, the, the lowdown quick and fast on the origin, like you said, of all these various elements. But I was... I was so blown away by the stuff with Krona because it's so, to me, now, full disclosure, I'm an ordained minister, uh, and, and uh, I, I sort of read everything through this lens at, at points, but it struck me as such an explicitly theological story. Yes. You've got, because it's so much like the story of the fall in the book of Genesis, and uh, I'm not going to preach a sermon, don't worry. No, <laughs> but, no, not at I, I it's, completely it's, it's agree with you. I see the of, yeah. there's there's this area of knowledge that for whatever reason, the powers that be have said this is off limits, you know. And and Krona, I mean, the way he's he, the, he, the way he's written in this issue, he comes across as the villain, and that's you know that's that's clear. But but you could look at it as others have sort of looked at Adam and Eve throughout the history of Western literature as kind of Prometheus-like figures, and and maybe they did us a favor by reaching out for knowledge that they shouldn't have had, and you know it forced us to grow up. And this kind of uh, motif that runs through through all Western literature. Um, I'm digressing, but I just I, it's because I found it so rich that there's this multiple ways to read this story in the Green Lantern issue in relation to Genesis and Prometheus and, and all these origins of why is there evil and suffering in the world. And when I picked this up, I didn't dream it was going to get into that, you know. I know that comics can do serious things, but this was from, you know, several decades ago and it had the comics code a seal of approval on it, you know. And but here's Krona peering back to the moment of creation and like you say, he's almost sees sort of sees the hand of God, maybe, you know, what's going on. I don't know. It makes me think of there's a there's a great Jewish story uh explaining why the Torah why the, the the Hebrew scripture 
begins in Hebrew with the letter Bet, which is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, you know, the rabbis were debating, since it's the beginning, shouldn't it start with an Aleph, you know, with an, with an A, basically, the first letter? And uh, the answer is, well, the letter Bet is shaped, uh, it's shaped sort of like the right bracket on a computer keyboard, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and since, since, you, since you read Hebrew right to left, uh, if you start at a Bet, the rabbi said it represents a barrier beyond which you can't go. So you can you can inquire about everything from the moment of creation on, but before the moment of creation, you know that's that's God's business and nobody else's. So that's a long way of saying the Chronos story reminded me of that, and it just really excited my imagination. And I thought, you know, here's this just explicitly theological title in the DCU that I didn't know about and and uh so it got me into green lantern and i'm reading blackest night and enjoying that and reading green lantern and green lantern core and and so far uh i actually am enjoying green lantern a little more but i think that's only because there are so many characters in green lantern core and if if you're only coming into glc the book during blackest night i know i'm entering the middle of stuff and I'm, i'm reading those issues a couple of times each month just to to feel like I have a grasp on what's going on for when my next box of comics comes, I could you know keep reading. But uh, so I think eventually I'm going to enjoy both the current Green Lantern titles. Uh, those and the Superman books are, are all I'm getting right now. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm babbling, I think, but just by way of saying I, I agree with you, and uh, it's neat stuff, and um, it is it really lots is to, lots to think about. And, in a comic book, who knew? We knew. Comic book fans know, but but it was a revelation to me. So, well, I I really liked Krona. I, I I'm pretty sure I was introduced to him in Crisis on Infinite Earths. I could be wrong about that. There may be an earlier story that I just don't remember seeing him first. But that that's where I remember him from because he he kind of plays catalyst in that story in in a certain way, and then he's also. Uh, one of the big baddies, one of the the main motivators in uh, the JLA Avengers crossover. And I really liked, although I was a little bit disappointed with that story, I have to admit, I liked his use in that story because I thought it was absolutely brilliant that uh, I'm thinking it's Kurt Busick wrote that story. I'm pretty sure. That sounds right, yeah. I thought he was brilliant in the in the use of okay krona's main motivation is that he wants to know what happened before that moment of creation and when he actually gets to cross over into the marvel universe i i just think it's genius that busick remembered there's a character in marvel that was around before creation who was galactus so you know krona becomes obsessed with you know wringing this knowledge you know, of pre-creation out of Galactus, and then that causes all this other stuff to to go on with, you know, the mashup of universes. I I, I liked that. I really thought that that was a good book and a, and a good story. So, I, I enjoyed that book too. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me right back here next week when who knows what mystery guest host will be popping by. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, and criticisms for the show via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of thecomicforums.com. We are now accepting requests for guest host spots on the show, so if you'd like to join me in an episode, let me know. 
Also, please be sure to check out the home website for Back to the Bins at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you can find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to drop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and I'll see you next week.